Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. The Irish and transnational novelist Colm Tobin is inviting us into a rare feast for alert readers this hour. The Magician is his new title. It's a biography in the form of a novel about the 20th century German giant Thomas Mann, both statesman and artist. The rare part is that Colm Tobin is also giving us a sort of anatomy lesson in the processes that make high art and artists, the family politics, the erotic engines seen and unseen, the historical memory in a country and culture that were coming apart. Toss in what Thomas Mann felt was the spiritual energy that reached him through art and especially music. Your magician is a marvel, Colm Tobin, and so are you. Welcome back to Open Source. I cannot wait to see where this conversation wants to go. For starters, sketch, if you will, Thomas Mann, the novelist of Death in Venice and the Magic Mountain, and also the public role that he was cast for, the Nobel Prize man in 1929, as Hitler chaos and hatred were on the rise. Mann was taken to represent the life of the mind in Germany, no less, before the Nazis captured it. How did you come to Thomas Mann, and why? When I was in my late teens, he was very fashionable, and it was in University College Dublin, and I think it was the same in the United Kingdom. Students were reading him in the same way as they might be reading David Foster Wallace now. So all of us read The Magic Mountain, and by the time I was in my early 20s, I would have read, I think, all his work. I didn't really know anything about him other than that he had some children and that he was married and that he was a very sort of respectable, scholarly sort of figure. At the end of his life, in his will, he said that his diaries were to be opened 35 years after his death. Hmm. And the diaries really changed everything because they gave us the view of his inner life or the inner life he wanted to put in a diary, which included his erotic life, which included the fact that despite the fact that he was married with his children, he was very interested in young men. And he watched them carefully, he gazed at them, and when he could meet them, he did. But politically, he was really hard to pin down because in the First World War, he was a sort of militarist. He was fired up with enthusiasm for a possible German victory in the First World War. I think by the early 1920s, he really had calmed down on that matter, perhaps with the help of his very clever wife. And he'd come over to the side of his brother Heinrich, who was, I suppose, anti-militarist. And of course, as Hitler rose... Thomas Mann, like a lot of Germans, didn't think there was any danger there, didn't really notice it, just these nuisances, these people who were on coup, who were making loud noises, but that he didn't foresee it. He won the Nobel Prize in 29. He is one of the best-known Germans in the world, himself at Einstein, and um, he goes into exile. And by the time he arrives in America in 1938, he is seen as somehow or other the leader of a German opposition or of a sort of German imagination hmm. that has resisted Hitler, that is anathema to the Nazis, and he arrives in America where he is fated. He's in the White House. He gives speeches that are attended by as many as 6,000 people. He broadcasts with the BBC into Germany, and he becomes a sort of political activist, which is very unlike the man he set out to be. 
I mean, he was a monarchist before the First World War. He's now a great Democrat. His speeches inspired people a great deal. Most of them are the same speeches. It's, it's called the coming victory of democracy. So it's not about much defeating Germany, although he wanted that, but he wanted something or other to take its place, which he believed in. There's so many live wires in the story here. At the same time, it seems to me the type a Thomas Mann is well-established. We don't have them anymore, but there were men, cultural giants as big as their countries. Wagner, he was very aware of Wagner, liked him. Tolstoy in another setting, you could say Victor Hugo in France, the embodiment of the spirit of a nation. Dickens in a way, Mark Twain in a way, Jonathan Franzen in his wildest dreams, embodying the country. What is a Thomas Mann in that sense? And do we need them? In a time of strife in a particular country, and this continues to be the case, writers who might otherwise write lyric poetry or novels about love are actually Mm. forced into a position where their work, even if it's just metaphor, but often if it's direct. So in Ireland, during the Troubles, we had figures like Seamus Heaney, or indeed Brian Friel, who no matter what they did, it was seen to be political. Heaney was very, very careful in how he moved. In South Africa, we had figures like Nadine Gordimer and Jay Mm. Curtey, who, and even even to this day, we have a figure like Damon Galga in South Africa, who emerge um, in some way or other, attempting to evade becoming prophets, trying to stick to the business of making sort of glittering and mysterious works of art but that nonetheless, are all, in the case of, say, Nadine Gordimer, are seen to be really about the conflict and that she becomes almost more important than politics itself, becomes the work of art that is attempting to soar above politics. I think we still have those sort of figures in divided countries. How do we judge the Mann performance overall? I mean, it's interesting that we read now that he had grave doubts about democracy even in general, but certainly in Germany. So recently divided, united only in, what, 1871, but he didn't believe it could succeed. Yes, I mean, we have have to remember that he changed. So his position in, say, 1914 is really very hard to understand, and it's very hard to stomach his sort of how he lost the plot in 1914, except that we have to remember People did that all over Europe. I mean, English people did it for the English victory. And um, indeed, in Ireland, there were a lot of hotheads wandering around, both wanting people to join the British army or join Irish nationalism and the rebellion of 1916. So he wasn't that unusual. It's just that it looked awful in retrospect. He was a monarchist. And he was even as the war was coming to an end, he was uneasy about democracy. By 1922, Thomas Mann has changed. It's absolutely genuine and it's fascinating to watch. We know a great deal about it because he wrote books, because he wrote letters, and he kept diaries. I come to picture Thomas Mann as a sort of wrestling match in one body between the fugitive rebel artist and the restraints that come with a nation and civilization at large. I think wrestling match is a great way of looking at him. In other words, he was involved early in his life with a wrestling match with his father, who in his will declared that the family business should be wound up, Hmm. which effectively ended the sort of importance of the man family in Lübeck, where his father was a senator and they they owned ships and they owned warehouses. So when his family went to Munich, they were really nobody there. But he never stopped feeling 
that he could impress his father, even though his father was long dead. He was wrestling all his life with his brother Heinrich, who was also a novelist. Yeah. And um, they took opposing positions on a number of matters. Heinrich was always to the left of Thomas. And indeed, when Germany was divided, Heinrich would have been more comfortable in the East and Thomas in the West. And then, as you say, he was wrestling with himself, that there were a number of forces within him which opposed each other. I think the sensuous life that he lived in his dreams was very far away from the figure who emerged on a podium to talk for an hour about Schiller. <laughs> Heinrich was cut out to be the artist in the family, and Thomas had to fight for that role himself. Look, it's bad enough being a novelist without having a brother who's also a novelist. <laughs> Don't we see Thomas Mann's self-portrait in his fictional figure of Gustav Aschenbach in Death in Venice? The uncompromising artist who was also self-consciously a German national hero, who is all of his life at the edge of a kind of erotic mania. There's a prowling, homosexual, searching spirit inside. And it's well aware of all the underlying risks of self-delusion, but also self-destruction. That's an incredible hybrid character right there. At the end of her life, Thomas Mann's wife, Katia, produced her memoirs. She dictated them. And they're called Unwritten Memories. And she remembered in 1911, the year before the publication of Death in Venice, being in Venice with her husband and her husband's brother, Heinrich, and being on the beach with her husband. They were staying in the exact hotel in the Lido in Venice where Aschenbach, the hero of Death in Venice, stayed. And she said, yes, my husband watched this boy who was incredibly good looking and really admired his beauty. Mm. So we realize that this novella, Death in Venice, is not about a symbolic beauty or symbolic decay. It is, in fact, a narrative written directly out of experience. Mm. It's not about Gustav Mahler either or anybody else. It's about himself. Yeah, Mahler was on his mind, however, because Mahler had just died. And so that idea of a major German figure is important in the story as well. This family of the Manns is interesting in every generation and virtually every character. And in fact, the, the family stories, including Katya, his Jewish wife, and his brother, and his father, and all of his six kids, begin to overwhelm, become the story. Explain how how you did that and how you chose to make it, in effect, a family saga even more than a literary one. You write more about the family than about the books. He, in ways, was a ghost in his own life. You know, he was silent in his study and he would come into the house and someone else would always be making the noise. And he had six noisy children. I mean, I did ponder going into the details of every chapter of some of the novels and realized that I had nothing more to say than a literary critic might Whereas the business of having the children, you know, his um, three eldest of the six were gay. But it wasn't just that. It was that after the First World War in Germany, people stopped ordering their children around. Too many orders had been given. And so a great freedom came to those who were in their late teens, early 20s. And Thomas Mann, certainly his two oldest children, Erika and Klaus, became iconic figures in the new Germany. Klaus wrote plays and wrote novels and Erika wrote articles and put on plays. But it wasn't just that. It was they were photographed all the time. They always seemed to be doing whatever they pleased. They were certainly part of that 1920s that we read about. Right. 
and that they were vital figures in that, in a way that Thomas Mann was never a vital figure. In other words, he was never someone out late at night. That never interested him. He lived a very sedate life. He was deeply domestic. He did not have close friends. He did not have a peer group. Once he married, he stayed home. So that the excitement in the book is all happening around him. He's watching it, he's resisting it, he's nourished by it, but it's not as though he himself is making the noise. Coming up, the odd couple that never met, Henry James, the master, and the magician, Thomas Mann. This is Open Source. What can we make, Colm Tobin, of the almost matched pair of novels that you've given us? First, The Master, about the great Henry James, and now The Magician, about Thomas Mann, both on the same high plateau, giants of transnational literature. Readers I know, by the way, are counting on you to round out a trilogy here. But here we have James, born American, three decades before Mann, expatriated to England, and Mann from Lübeck, trading post on the Baltic, as you say, who was never quite comfortable in the unified Germany and went into exile in Hitler time. Both James and Mann define themselves eventually as figures of sexual ambivalence, confusion, certain fear at the core of their being. I mean, how are they connected I think by levels of uncertainty and levels of ambiguity. In other words, that every time you try and pin them down, they evade you. We can just produce a list that, for example, Henry James loved his family and he got away from them as early as he could and he didn't go back. He loved mm. solitude and yet he would seem to go out every night, especially when he was living in London. <laughs> and he complained a lot about money and yet, you know, he had inherited a great deal of money and his best friends tended to be women and he was probably homosexual. So that we can do exactly the same thing with Thomas Mann, that any time we try and say something about him, the opposite turns out to be true. Mm. The marriage is, in this instance, fascinating for that reason, in that it could easily be that since he was gay, that he married someone and made her very unhappy. But that's not how the marriage was. It's a much more complex marriage than that. And as artists then, they both managed to find ways of dealing with what preoccupied them most, not in autobiography or directly in any way, but indirectly and therefore much more powerfully as metaphor in fiction. Mann, I think much more directly because his first novel, Buddenbrooks, is really a novel directly about his family. But Henry James in novels, for example, Portrait of a Lady, Golden Bowl, Wings of the Dove, The Ambassadors, has a secret, which is usually a sexual secret, which if disclosed will be explosive. And that is what animates those novels, which are, in my opinion, his best novels. But even in later work, Thomas Mann, for example, in Dr. Faustus that he wrote in California in the Second World War, there is a portrait of his mother, which is very direct, and of his two sisters, which is also very direct. So that he did, I think, much more than James, put absolutely clear autobiography into fiction. He also, by the way, did what I've just done. He wrote a novel about Goethe. (laughs) He imagined the life of a great German writer. Um, My problem is I don't have a third that I've been thinking about. I thought about the James book for a long time before I wrote it, as I did about the man. 
And I don't now. Maybe some readers would be delighted, but I don't have a parent. Well, we may be able to suggest a few, but I just want to note also there's an incredible coincidence, it seems to me, that both James and Mann wrote stories that spelled out exactly who they were and what they were struggling with or glorying in. Henry James first wrote the story, The Beast in the Jungle, yeah. about a man who discovers, John Marcher, who discovers painfully that he is incapable of giving a woman the love that she wants and needs. In fact, the want of it kills her. He wrote that in his late 60s, and it's, I just want to note it was 2003. Along comes Thomas Mann in 1912, and he has this experience in Venice, and he writes the story of the death in Venice. And they're very, very parallel scenes, it seems to me, figures who cannot quite make up their minds or square their life practice with their contrary passions. And then, reading Death in Venice again, he actually has a beast in the jungle. In Munich, he's, Eisenbach yes. is walking, through, you know, he's ruminating, I got to get out of here, something's fading, I'm losing ground, and he sees this tiger, an actual tiger in this jungle of his imagination. And I thought, he must have read James. No, I don't think so. Where does his beast in the jungle come from? Um, it came from his own imagination. It came from the, the whole idea of what image would you need most to describe a sort of panic, to describe a sort of fear. And it is that you're in this wild place and you're open to attack. It occurred to both of them. Um, I, I think there's a late James story called The Jolly Corner. Yep. You can see connections to man where the figure is divided, where he mm. goes He's been away for many years, comes back to, home New to New York, Greenwich Village. And finds his own double is actually in the rooms that he has left behind in New York, where he gets a cleaner in once a week, an, an Irish cleaner, I should add, called <laughs> Mrs. Muldoon. He gets her in once a week, but he goes in at night and finds that his double, his semblable, his frères, is actually in the rooms. And I think with man in something like Dr. Faustus, his novel about a 20th century German composer, it's narrated by a German humanist. And it is as though both of those figures, the humanist and this sort of mm. um, zest composer, are aspects of man himself. They're sort of him doubled. They're extracted from aspects of him. And I think both artists worked through very, very difficult material. I mean, personal material. I think they worked through right. demons in fiction in ways which are filled with revelation and ways which are filled with concealment. These are both very brave men, it seems to me. They're pushing against a taboo. They're breaking ground in writing for mass audiences, but they're also breaking ground in themselves. The master and the magician, they surely are related. And I'm waiting for the, for the third M in your trilogy. Who could it be in the realm of pushing the envelope in the 20th century? Virginia Woolf comes to mind. You come to mind in a certain way. Edna O'Brien, who wrote boldly about sexuality and sex as a young writer. I think also of Nabokov in a strange way, in Lolita. Is this a connected history or is it my imagination? It's your imagination. Because whatever it is with the way Mann and James did this in their fiction, whatever way they dealt with their homosexuality, whatever way they dealt, I think even more importantly, with ideas of loss, with losing their country, hmm. in the case of Mammoth losing Lubeck as a young man, that I think really came to fascinate me and took me over. 
in a way that I don't have, as I say, I don't have a third. Um, so many other things here, including the troubles of our own time, 2021, that rumble through Thomas Mann's 20th century. He wrote an anxious essay at the approach of what we call World War I. He called it Thoughts in Wartime. He was feeling the need for a European catastrophe. Deep in our hearts, he said, we felt that the world could no longer go on as it had. Yeah. The book that eventually emerged from this is a book called Reflections of a Non-Political Man, mm. been reissued by the New York Review of Books. I mean, it seems to me to be a deplorable book. I mean, it's worth reading just to see how wrong an important artist can be. So it's, it's a very valuable book to that extent. And it also, I think, shows the limits of man's intelligence. In other words, mm. um, he wasn't a political philosopher. And if he wasn't a deep thinker, if he had been those things, he would not have been the novelist he became. And yet he abandoned the novel, The Magic Mountain, at the beginning of the war, fired up throughout the war, driving his family crazy, bringing in a man to advise him, a man called Berman, to advise him, mm. wife disliked intensely, and who became an important Nazi. But of course, Bertrand had read a great deal and had read much more deeply and widely than man had. And, um, and the two of them got together and produced this atrocious book. And um, luckily, the book came out just as the war had ended. No one really paid that much attention to it. And um, man then changed his life completely because he went back working on the Magic Mountain. And when that was published in the early 20s, it really was what everyone in Germany wanted to read, a big book about the future that had wonderfully sensuous images of all these people locked in a sanatorium in Davos and the sort of sexual politics and the everyone's health, but then the great debates going on about um, personal freedom and democracy and um, about the future. So he really behaved foolishly in a war. He's not the first writer to behave foolishly politically. He saw almost opposites here between the life of the artist and the life of the public authority. Uh, one spoke for a certain wildness, one spoke for the enduring community, and they were two very, very different voices. Are you saying that he just kidded himself about the importance of his thinking side? Yes, his wife said about him that never ask Tommy too much because he really only knows what he's just written. <laughs> I mean, considering the, how great the German universities are, he didn't attend one of them. He was self-educated, and there were gaps in his reading. What's interesting is that when we see him emerge finally as a Democrat, as someone understanding the dangers to democracy, understanding the poisonous nature of the Nazis, mm. understanding how essential it was to get America on side, to oppose them militarily, he becomes a great man for those few years. He moves out of his study into the world. So we, we can see a very different Thomas Mann, say, in 1942-43, than we saw in 1914-15. What gave him, looking back, in this country, but starting in Germany, that august reputation of the mind of Germany at work? I think, first of all, that at the age of 25, he completed a novel called Buddenbrooks, which is one of the great 19th century blockbuster novels. And um, it tells the story of four generations of a commercial family in Lübeck, which is effectively his own family. And that book, because it's a book about the decline of a certain way of doing business in Germany, and it's also about the introduction into this commercial family of music, of art, where the senator marries a woman who's fascinated by the violin, and they're 
only son, who is a picture of Thomas Mann, becomes only interested in music. And so it starts there. It starts with everybody reading his work and, and then very playful short stories that he wrote and then Death in Venice. And slowly it built up that he was someone who, I think writers are divided like this, where some writers really want to write essays and will give lectures and other writers don't want to do that, but that he became interested in giving lectures on the people who matter to him, such as, for example, the figure of Goethe or the figure mm. of Wagner. And so, you know, along the way, he would regularly give lectures, appear in podiums, give readings. And, um, you know, he became, I think, especially in the 1920s, after the publication of The Magic Mountain, leading up to the Nobel Prize, in those years when people in Germany desperately wanted someone to cling on to, someone who seemed to be rational politically as he became, but also had written novels that in their way of imagining the world stood apart from mere politics and suggested some other uh, rich way that life could be observed and were became interested in ideas of freedom against restriction, that he became somebody who Germans could trust and enormous numbers attended his readings and read his books and he began to matter enormously. And of course, anyone operating as he did in those years became an implacable enemy of the Nazis. How did he come to see himself and be seen as, as a great champion, the great model of the Enlightenment? What, what did that mean to him? I think that he was, by the end, I mean, by 1933, he actually stood for something. I wouldn't necessarily say Enlightenment, because, of course, he, he remained all his life connected fundamentally to Germany in a way that his brother Heinrich was interested in Italy or, or, or in France or in a whole idea of Europe. Thomas Mann remained utterly German, even so that that is what tortures him in the 1930s, that he was listening to the very same music as Hitler, that Hitler began as an artist too, that the whole machinery of German romantic music that had stirred his imagination so much had also unsettled other people into political violence and into ideas of totalitarianism. And he became concerned about this. I mean, I mean that this very culture that had made him had made others who were the opposite. So that his claim in America in the 1940s was that it wasn't merely a small section of German life had become Nazis, that there was something fundamental in the way that German culture was that gave rise to the Nazis. And we had to be aware of that. We had to know it in order to defeat it. Did he nail it? Does that stand up in your view? Like a lot of arguments like that, it's personal. The big issue was an argument between him and Brecht. And it had a particular importance in America over who is responsible for what has happened in Germany. And Bertolt Brecht would have said the working class are not responsible. Thomas Mann would have said the entire culture is responsible. And we have to know that in order to remake that culture. If we just say that there were just 1% responsible for leading the other 99% in this direction, we're going to miss the point of what happened in Germany. That argument became a serious one in America because at one point there was a thing called the Morgenthau Plan which was to reduce Germany permanently to a place that would produce vegetables, to, to actually you know, cement over the Ruhr Valley, to deindustrialize the country fundamentally so that having risen twice in the 20th century, it could not rise again. And obviously this didn't happen. 
but it was an argument people were making that there was something poisonous about Germany itself and the German industry, that the, the actual coal and steel and came with, I suppose, a cultural instability, which was also dangerous. How do we apply that and how do we look to Thomas Mann or others in a moment in America where some of those same grave doubts come to everybody's minds at all sorts of levels. A breakdown in our politics of vulgarity and sort of recklessness in our culture, not to mention the natural environment and what we're doing and not doing about it. I mean, what use is Thomas Mann in times as bad as these? Is that partly why we're talking about him? In the 1920s, he simply didn't see it coming. And all the evidence was there with the sort of rise of a sort of rhetoric, which he saw as so ludicrous. And some of us might know that feeling of seeing a group of people and thinking no matter what happens, they could never be elected. And then sitting there one night watching TV, watching them being elected. And he went through that. And he obviously went through the whole business then of you have a particular leader and the words seem ludicrous until you realize that some people are listening carefully to those words and are acting upon them. There was a funny moment writing the book where I was trying to think of a detail because you're always trying to think of an image rather than having an opinion about a character or a scene. Just give an image. And I was thinking about what happens at the beginning of a dictatorship. And I just mentioned in passing the post, the mail system slowed down. Mm. And I just wrote that in. When I was going over the proofs, I realized, oh, my God, that has just happened me here because I was in Los Angeles and the post, the American mail system had slowed down, had been deliberately slowed down. I thought, will I leave it in or will people think, oh, I'm, he must be referring to what's happening now? But I wasn't. I put it in by accident. But I left it in because I just thought, well, this is something that happens in countries where people are practicing totalitarianism. I, um, I think of what's happening in America now from a perspective of Ireland, where today we have reached 90%, 90% full vaccination. Why did this happen with, with the vaccinations now? But there's nothing in Thomas Mann that will help us there. You know, in the end, I was interested in the character as much as I was in the politics, in just somebody whose mind is divided, people all around him in a way are more interesting than he is, except when he writes. Hmm. His genius is always about the shadows. In his study, in the shadowy space, he emerges and can work. When he comes into a room, he doesn't fill the room with light, he fills the room with shadow. Hmm. I wanted to deal with, this, with the idea of displacement, that twice in his life, from his time in Lübeck to going to Munich and his time then, and Hitler rose coming to America. It's one of the great sort of 20th century stories of people who, there are so many people who've been twice uprooted in their lives now. And so I was interested in those sort of, uh, in a way from an emotional perspective, from what that is like for people, to create images of that, rather than trying to, in a way, understand the rise of Hitler, which I think is, I, th I think as a novelist, you have to be very careful if you're trying to solve very big questions, large political ones or religious ones or philosophical ones that you should just think, well, my job is to tell this story. My job is to tell this story. My job is to tell this story. Coming up, the Beethoven connection in a spirit of thanksgiving. This is Open Source. The 
the unflagging Irish writer Colm Tobin may be best known for Brooklyn. The novel turned into a movie with Saoirse Ronan in 2015. But he's also made it his specialty to bring novelists to life in his own novels. Henry James first, then Thomas Mann. Speak to us, Colm Tobin, about the lure and the satisfactions of writing fiction about real people. Well, I think you have to imagine them as much as, you know, understand them, that there's a huge amount of information about both Henry James and Thomas Mann. I mean, really vast, a number of biographies, letters, diaries, notebooks, books by members of their families. Mm. This is all very useful, but I think that anyone approaching this material, each person will write a different book. In other words, with Henry James, I picked 11 moments in his life. I think anyone looking at the material would pick 11 different ones. (laughs) And I think so that to that extent, it's not that you're writing autobiography, but it is that your own sensibility is become dominant in the things you choose to write about and the things you choose not to write about. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. When I came to write a certain section of the book, I had been Six months in, more or less all of it, in hospital, actually, with reactions to chemotherapy, having had cancer. Thomas Mann has cancer and has a big operation in Chicago. I just didn't want to put it in the book. The reason being that it didn't add to anything. It was just another event in his life. I couldn't use it for any other purpose. And even though I had been through the experience and I could have described the tubes, the injections, the nurses, the hospital, the sounds, the smells... I actually felt it wouldn't add to the story and I didn't put it in. Someone else might come to that story and think this somehow or other is a great American-German moment where you see him in in a hospital with all the American people and things around him. But I didn't do it. And so that you keep choosing things that interest you. The plague context in Thomas Mann's work comes up a lot of places. It's tuberculosis in Davos, in the Magic Mountain, it's cholera, or the rumor of cholera in the death in Venice. Speak of that as an essential part of our times and your own life and ours, this fear and this reverence for death. In the middle of the pandemic, um, it, it occurred to me that Venice was empty. And there was one week, there was a sort of window mm. where you could get into Italy. And I went to Venice. There was no one there. The Vaporetti, I mean, there was, there, there was no one. and I mean, the streets were empty. The, the, the Grand Canal, there was almost no traffic. But one of the interesting things was that Titian painted his last paintings during a plague in Venice that really wiped out about a third of the population of the city. The plague was nothing new in Venice. And then I went over to the Lido and I looked where Thomas Mann had written Death in Venice and the hotel. And there's a vivid description of cholera coming up and he names the countries coming up from Persia and where it arrived next and going to Russia and then realize it's actually coming towards them as death in Venice. Death in Venice is not merely about an older man gazing at a young man. It's about the arrival of cholera in Venice and of course this is going to have lethal consequences. So he was fascinated by decay, by tuberculosis. Illness itself interested him. In Buddenbrooks, it's typhoid. In Dr. Faustus, it's meningitis. In Dr. Faustus, it's also syphilis. These illnesses absolutely fascinated him, almost in the same way as sex did 
death did, Eros and Thanatos, the two of them arrived mm-hmm. in his imagination. And it wasn't that they did battle, they embraced. Can I quote Thomas Mann on death from the Magic Mountain? When the hero, sure. Hans Kastrup, gets lost in a snowy mountain and has a vision of death and then realizes this, death is a great power. You take off your hat and tiptoe past his presence, rocking your way forward. He wears the ceremonial rough of what has been, and you put on austere black in his honor. Reason stands foolish before him, for reason is only virtue, but death is freedom, and kicking over the traces, chaos and lust. Lust, my dream says, not love, death and love. There is no rhyming them. That is a preposterous rhyme, a false rhyme. Love stands opposed to death. It alone, and not reason, is stronger than death. For the sake of goodness and love, man shall grant death no dominion over his thoughts. <laughs> Who's been reading Schopenhauer? <laughs> <laughs> not I, but we've been reading a lot of mine and a lot of Tobin and, and, and loving it again. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Well, that's, well, that's maybe... The only purpose of the novel The Magician is to make you go back to Buddenbrooks and the Magic Mountain and Dr. Faustus and see what real novels are like. The joy of reading Colm Tobin about real people is the care in your improvisations, the dialogues you write. And obviously it's you talking, not him or them. For example, I love this moment. He's talking with a painter And the painter says, isn't it strange that no matter how well we paint the face, we struggle to paint hands? He says, if the devil came here now and asked me what I would want in exchange for eternity under his reign, I would ask him to let me paint hands, hands that no one would even notice, perfect hands. And he says, do novelists have a problem like our problem with hands? And Thomas Mann character says, it is sometimes hard to write about love. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so many instances of this. I love the moment he's in Manhattan. He said lunch with somebody at the Bedford Hotel. And he's just walking down the street and loving it. In Princeton, where he had been living, he was generally on his guard aware that he would be noticed and recognized everywhere. Here, however, in these narrow streets that reminded him of some European city, he could let his gaze linger freely on anyone at all. While most of those he passed were preoccupied and distant, eventually he knew he would see some young man coming toward him and catching his eye for a second, become unafraid to look at him directly and deeply, not disguising his interest. (laughs) Now, I just want to take you through the next scene where, well, he's gone into the city where his son and his brother and his sister-in-law are going to finally come from Europe on a boat. But he has this time free and he sort of cruises in the streets. Where he's going, actually, he's going into a record store. Mm. He loves classical music. And now he's going to just buy some records. He knows the people in the store. Now, I have a lot of fun because in Columbia University, in the library, I find a book, which is a catalogue of available vinyl 
1940. Oh. <laughs> now, this is such a golden thing. It's godsend. And I can go to every composer. Oh, my God, 23 discs for something. Oh, look at this composer. Oh, my God, they hadn't reissued this yet. And I thought, this is fascinating. So a man will come in and the guy will say to him, America's going to enter the war. And he said, how do you know? People are buying up vinyl. People are buying records. People are coming in here crazily buying records. They know they're going to have to store up on these sort of things. And man begins to flirt with the guy in the record shop and his assistant. And this is based on, there's a gallery I would go to sometimes on a Saturday just to see whatever they had. This is a gallery in Chelsea in New York. I didn't flirt with the two guys, but I, we did talk and we did talk about, you know, paintings and what artists were coming and going. So I used something that I would do and added the flirting, but also was able to add him buying the records. And he buys too much stuff, but nonetheless, you realize he's going back to Princeton with an extraordinary store of stuff, which anyone who's ever in the old CD days gone in to buy two CDs and come out with seven. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. That happened too much to people like people like me who like think, oh, I should get these as well. And you're up at the cash register thinking, will I bring them back? Oh, no, I'll just... You know, so it's that sort of moment that I think all of us know from buying classical music. You know, I was able to work with that because I've been there. That's one of the scenes I think that I would have chosen and that somebody else might not have chosen to write because they might not be interested in that. You've entered the realm of music and we can't let it go. In Death in Venice, he makes this marvelous argument that beauty in a person, in Tazio, who he can't take his eyes off, but also in music, in anything, beauty is the combination of the divine and the real that we can apprehend in our senses. And it's therefore sort of sacred. And he goes on to talk at length about Beethoven. And I'd love you to read those passages where he's listening to a late Beethoven string quartet, Opus 132, and it means everything to him. And I think to you, give us a taste of that almost sacramental uh, listening. Thomas Mann's son, Michael, plays the viola. Thomas Mann has a new house, which is built in California in Pacific Palisades, which he goes to live in in 1942. He has got all his family out of Germany. And he asks Michael, his son, if they will play Beethoven's Opus 132, which is one of the last quartets. And Michael's quartet has already played this, so they know how to do it. The family gathers around, and Michael and his three friends, the two violinists and the cello, begin. When the music began... Thomas was struck by its daring, the quiet release of a sort of anguish, followed by a tone that suggested struggle, with hints that the struggle brought both pain and joy, immense joy. He must, he knew, stop thinking, give up trying to find simple meaning in the music, but instead let it enter his spirit, listen to it as though he might never get another chance. It was hard not to look at the players, however, not to study their seriousness and concentration. Thomas watched them taking their cues from the lead violinist. The lead violinist and Michael on the viola seemed to spar, taking energy from each other. The music edged towards resolution and held back for a moment before it soared. 
The second movement ended and Thomas vowed that from now on he would listen more keenly, stop letting his mind wander into idle speculation. You remember this Beethoven quartet as being sad, sometimes mournful. What was surprising now was that while the undertone was melancholy, the way the instrument stopped and started it and moved into melody made it uplifting. Suffering in the music was buried in every note, but so too was something almost stronger, some sense of an unyielding beauty that after a few minutes rose as though surprised at its own vigor into a sound that made him stop thinking Stop trying to find meaning in this and simply listen. Let his spirit absorb what was being played. As the quartet was close to the end, he forced himself to listen and do nothing else. No musings on character or on novels, just this sound, its rhythms held by the viola and cello, and then interrupted by the two violinists who darted in and out of each other's orbits as though the other two musicians did not exist. Now Michael started to play the viola with more and more confidence, determined it seemed that his sound would not merely be an undertone, even if it could not dominate against the high emotion coming from the violins, which were now playing with ferocious zeal. If music could evoke feelings that allowed for chaos, as much as order or resolution, Thomas thought, And since this quartet left space for the romantic soul to swoon or bow its head in sorrow, then what would the music that led to the German catastrophe sound like? It would not be war music or marching music. It would not need drums. It could be sweeter than that, more sly and silky. What happened in Germany would need a music not only sombre but slippery and ambiguous, with a parody of seriousness alert to the idea that it was not only desire for territory or riches that gave rise to the mockery of culture that was Germany now, it was the very culture itself, he thought, the actual culture that had formed him and people like him, that contained the seeds of its own destruction. The culture had proved defenceless and useless against pressure. And the music, the romantic music, in all the heightened emotion it unleashed, had helped to nourish a raw mindlessness that had now become brutality. As the players drew near the final stretch, He felt the excitement of having been taken out of time and also resolved that on this occasion the thoughts and ideas that came to him would mean something. It filled a space that he had been quietly creating. For a split second as the playing ended, he was sure that he had it. He saw the scene. His composer in a house in Poland, the place where his mother had died. Then it faded as he stood up with the others to applaud the quartet. He bowed in unison making clear this final gesture, like their playing, had been rehearsed. That's everything I want to know about 
why Thomas Mann's mind is still compelling and why the prose of Colm Tobin fits it like a glove. Well, thank you very much. I mean, that is, it's the most beautiful, I think, of the late quartets, is Opus 132, which has at its centre a 20-minute slow movement. Beethoven saw as a sort of prayer of thanksgiving, just putting it in there, right in the middle of the war, that, that he's talking about it, both stirring up feelings that are dangerous and stirring up feelings that are essential. Contravene, every novel of yours and every occasion to listen to you is such a treat. We can't thank you enough. It's a joy to have you on our program and we'd love to have you back. Yeah, it's always great talking to you. Thank you very much. Colm Tobin is the author of the novels Brooklyn, The Master, and now The Magician. He's a professor at Columbia University and Chancellor of the University of Liverpool. Please think of supporting the hardest-working team in radio. You can leave a tip at radioopensource.org or by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon, where you'll find a growing audio library of conversations on all sorts of subjects, politics, art, philosophy, literature, and more. Find it at patreon.com slash radioopensource. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit audio collective creating some of the smartest podcasts you'll find anywhere. This week, check out The Briny from producer Matt Frassica. It's a show about our connections with the ocean through personal stories, science, history, food, and folklore. Matt explores how we're changing the sea and how the sea changes us. Find it at thebriny.net. And while you're at it, check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Adam Coleman and George Hicks, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. Mary McGrath is our magician. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts making some of the smartest audio you can find. This week, check out Iconography, a show about the icons, real and imagined, that define our sense of place. Host Charles Gustine visits the real Paddington Station in London as a way into a story about the fictional icon Paddington Bear, beloved by children of all generations. Listen at iconographypodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And learn more about the whole lineup of Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.